0: Before I forget, though, really lost my.
1: <laughs> this is why we um typically should we come up with we have a plan first, right, for the podcast before, before we, start, we start. Before we okay. start. Before we do that.
0: Hi everyone, welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an associate professor of government here at William and Mary, and joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague Marcus Holmes. Hello, Marcus.
1: Hi, Jeff. How you doing? I'm doing very
0: well. Just a couple of things I wanted to take care of off the top here. First, I want to uh, just thank everyone who's visited our store at cheaptalk.shop and have purchased t-shirts or stickers or mugs. We do appreciate it. If you haven't checked it out yet, please do. Again, the URL cheaptalk.shop. Check that out. Let us know what you think if there's anything else you'd like to see there. But we appreciate everyone doing their their holiday shopping. I am the um, proud recipient of a Cheap Talk wordmark t-shirt that has just the words cheap talk in the corner. And uh I really like it. I'm excited to kind of break that out it around town in Williamsburg and and get up nods from all the listeners who who know know what we're talking about.
1: Yeah, we've been wearing our attire uh, as a family all around Williamsburg and and I can't tell if people kind of know what's going on. I assume they do. I assume when they see balloon corner on my on my sweatshirt, they 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 know and they're just like they get all a nice smile uh, and a good feeling comes across them. Um, but no one's really said anything about it. So like if you if you see us on the street wearing our, our apparel, you know, feel free to say hi and say, you know, oh, that's a great that's a great sweatshirt. That's a great T-shirt.
0: Yeah. So please uh, check that out if you haven't already. Uh, we do. We do appreciate your support. So, Marcus, this is going to be our last podcast of the year as we kind of enter the holiday season, got some travel and then the, the semester is wrapped up for William and Mary. So we, we're we going to see everybody back in January. So just a quick scheduling note, please stay with us. You'll be notified about our next episode in January if you subscribe to the podcast in your podcast player of choice. So that could be Spotify, it could be Apple Podcasts. My particular pick is Overcast, but uh, wherever you get your podcast is a good place to to subscribe. So you'll be sure to know when the, when the podcast is back in the new year in 2024. We have a couple of bits of follow-up. Last time we talked about Chinese immigrants coming to America through the southern border via Mexico. And we talked about La Bestia, the beast train, which is this very dangerous journey on a train um, that kind of takes migrants up through Mexico to the border. And we had a couple of pieces of follow-up. Listener Brian from Tucson, Arizona, recommended for for those who are interested in the subject, recommended a book called The Beast, Riding the Rails and Dodging Narcos on the Migrant Trail by Oscar Martinez. I will put a link in the show notes to that. That was an award-winning book about this train and about the journey of migrants through Mexico. Jeff from Ellicott City, Maryland, no relation, Jeff, recommended a documentary called La Bestia, Two thousand and five documentary by Pedro Altares, which I have not seen but comes recommended by at least one listener mm-hmm. so i 'll put a link in the show notes to, th- to that as well So for those interested in more information about this kind of migrant journey through mexico and the the, the dangers and and the moments of humanity that that occur um, on this journey, you can check out that book and that movie you know there 's a lot going on in the world as usual. We have things continuing to escalate in the israel Gaza. Conflict. We have some, maybe some daylight between the Biden administration and uh, Israel's Netanyahu administration about both the conduct of the war and the post-war situation in Gaza. What will be the, the ultimate way to settle settle this conflict? Ukraine's President Zelensky was visiting Washington, D.C., talking to congresspeople, uh, seeking funding for Uh, us funding to support the war against russia the funding for ukraine of course is caught up in a partisan battle in congress over border security and funding for changes on the border and some policy changes on the border so there was there was that visit a lot of stuff going on in the world but i thought because this is really uh ai podcast 2023 is the uh the year of ai right yep and we're kind of wrapping up our our podcast for the year I thought we could take a few minutes to talk about AI government governance and some recent events with regard to AI regulation. So recent news in the AI world, the European Union passed, well, at least came up with a regulation, a proposed regulation for dealing with the use of AI in, in the EU. And this kind of comes on the heels of the Bletchley Park Declaration, which we've talked about a little bit on the pod that came up with kind of general AI principles that countries agree to look into more in the future. And this also comes on the heels of President Biden's executive order on AI, which talks in kind of a similar vein to the EU regulations about uh, what would be responsible use of AI in the domestic U.S. context. And I guess I I wanted to get your take, Marcus, on, on whether all of this is starting to add up to something. Do we see progress on AI governance and regulation to the point where we should start to pay attention, where this stuff should start to matter to us as we think about the role that AI is going to play in international security in the future?
1: I think it's interesting that we're seeing more um, discussion and agreement that there needs to be AI governance. But what what struck me um, about this particular I guess deal or framework that the EU came up with was actually just how much like sort of division there were among member states uh, in the EU about exactly how to do this. Um, so the story, one of the stories that I was looking at was talking about how um, some of some EU members, you know, sort of from a from a privacy perspective, think that there needs to be a lot done uh, to regulate something like ChatGPT or other kind of AI AI models, particularly if we start seeing things like facial recognition being used increasingly. Um, ways to kind of connect, you know, things that are happening on the on the internet to actual people, uh, and maybe you know, sort of use AI models to kind of determine who somebody is based on things that they're saying or or pictures that they take, or something like that. The EU, I think, is rightly kind of worried about the privacy concerns uh, that would would come from that, and they've had privacy concerns about just like the internet more generally uh, for a long time. So that's not surprising that that would be their focus. But there were a, a number of, of countries. I think Germany and France sort of pointed out. We need to be very careful here, right, because we this regulation of of AI, when they're talking about sort of their, this first generation of AI tools like ChatGPT, uh, they talk about it as these sort of foundational uh, models of how AI is going to uh, sort of progress. If you are regulating them heavily from a government perspective, the concern is that you're stifling Europe. Uh, in terms of their ability to innovate, compete with American companies, compete with ChatGPT, compete with Chinese uh, firms, and so when when you have this sort of industry or set of industries that are kind of at a high growth moment but still relatively early on, there's this worry: like if we if we don't regulate, then we're going to have all these problems, presumably, and, and privacy issues. If we do regulate at the EU level, uh, one of the things might, that might happen is that we get left behind uh, because there's going be other countries that don't have those same exact regulations or might have looser regulations. Uh, and so therefore they're going to, they're going to benefit in, in sort of IPE terms, this is sometimes talked about as like the race to the bottom, right? Like the, the thing that was, was big in the 1990s was, you know, debates about sort of offshoring or outsourcing of manufacturing. Uh, and it's, it's kind of a similar type of, of, of argument, right? It's like, well, if I regulate um, my own internal sort of outsourcing uh, uh, ethics and morality and make, you know, sweatshops, not, not uh, be able to be uh, made, that's fine. But the consequence is going to be there's gonna be other countries out there that are going to adopt other types of regulations that are more lax. And the the result of that is that companies are not going to go to my country, they're going to go to some other country that has uh, fewer regulations. And this creates this kind of, you know, race to the bottom, essentially. And, and that's the kind of the opposite of what you want from a regulatory perspective, because you want to be able to have Sort of a fair game for for everybody, but also some basic kind of regulatory or governance principles that are, are protecting everybody. So, like I see this sort of as a similar type of situation where countries are are very much worried about regulating AI, but they don't want to do so in a way that's going to encourage um, companies to take their their assets and their brain power uh, to other countries and and benefit, and then. China or or another country that has perhaps lax or more lax regulations will be able to eventually be a a dominator in the industry and and lead on this. So I think the EU is is sort of suggesting that that a lot of us would agree we need to have some type of regulation, we have some type of governance, but we need to do so in a way that's not just going to create this sort of race to the bottom effect where you have other countries just kind of open things up and allow allow anything to happen. So to answer your question. I I think it's still a little early. I think there's still like, you know, questions that are going to be discussed, but I am kind of heartened by the idea that the EU is having these discussions. The the United States is having these discussions in Congress and elsewhere. You know, these conversations need to be had, but you can't, you can't really do them in isolation because, uh, for the reasons I talked about, like this is ultimately kind of a market and there are effects, uh, that, that are, you know, felt across the globe when you have regulations in in one particular area or one particular alliance like the EU has. What are, what are your thoughts on this, Jeff?
0: This points to the tension in AI regulation, which is that it is both a domestic imperative. So if there is going to be AI regulation that's effective, it has to be at the domestic level. And we've talked about this before that, the the real action right now is really at the domestic level because that's where the technology is being developed and put into use, and so there must be this kind of national level, or I guess in the EU, regional level legislation or regulation to to deal with the potential challenges of AI from a from a privacy perspective, from a security perspective, uh, other perspectives. But it, but it's at the same time what you're pointing out is that it's not enough, right? There also needs to be international cooperation when it comes to ai regulation otherwise it's not going to be effective and part of the reason that it's difficult to regulate this on solely the domestic level is because of these fear of competition that you don't want to put your country at a competitive disadvantage and so in that way it does have parallels with other kinds of international agreements like, like international labor agreements or environmental regulations that try to level the playing field between countries that are engaged in these pursuits without giving a country a particular advantage, but still allowing regulators to protect against some of the negative consequences of these technologies. So that there, there has to be kind of both levels. And right now we're seeing the domestic side without really the international side and, I, you know, we've seen some attempts at, at international cooperation, and the Bletchley Park meetings are one of these attempts. But as we've said before, the, for for now, the kind of focus of attention really is at, at the domestic level, and we'll see how these regulations shape up. The EU ones are really in a preliminary stage. We don't know what the actual regulations will look like. What we know is kind of a general description of what they will be, but the specific language will be fought over and then will need to be approved by uh, all the EU bodies before ultimately being put into law. But this is a multi-year timeframe that we're on before we see the effects uh, of this regulation.
1: Right. And and the other thing, too, is and we've talked about this before in the on the pod, but it's worth pointing out, you know, the, the international component of this, of this is going to be very difficult, it seems to me. Um, it's one thing to say domestically, like, OK, we have a handle on our technology. We have a handle on, um, you know, how we think we should do this, despite the fact that AI, uh, you know, sort of advances rapidly. And so I'm, I'm actually kind of skeptical that even at domestic levels, like states are going to be able to like come up with effective regulatory mechanisms. But be that as it may, let's assume that they can for a second. The other, the other, you know, sort of issue here is that AI is a little bit different than other, you know, sort of products or commodities or services in the sense that they are linked to security and geopolitical kind of issues. Right. So like if you have AI as a strategic asset, like you think that AI is important for your national security, you're going to be unlikely, I think, or unwilling to share uh, or collaborate on that information. Right. Because it's, it's, it's part of your national security. So I think what we're going to end up seeing is this sort of um, uh, balance between global – the need for global cooperation, the need for um, regulation at the international level that most states are going to recognize, but varying national interests, um, and when it comes to sort of having a strategic advantage over another – That might be an area where it becomes really hard to have uh, agreement because you're holding back. You know, it's not not necessarily the same thing as sort of free riding, but it is sort of like a a type of a collective action problem where you have, you know, this sort of like incentive to not share everything that you, 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 you know, would be beneficial to a regulatory regime because you want to hold something back for your national strategic interests, or you want to hold something back because you think maybe the United States is, or you think the EU is, and all that kind of stuff goes on too. So I think it's it's one thing to to do this at the domestic level achieving it at the international level is just, uh, you know, I think a whole, whole different kettle of fish, not unlike in some ways the climate change, uh, which we're going to talk about in a second, I think, because that too was sort of like one of these issues back, you know, in the, the past couple of decades that we've, we've realized it's one thing to sort of passed domestic re- regulations and, and legislation about, you know, carbon or CFCs or whatever, to do it at the international level uh becomes much trickier. The challenges are slightly different. It's not really about strategic interests necessarily, but economic interests certainly are are a part of that. So I think like like many uh sort of you know, international regulation uh and governance issues, this is gonna be a very tricky one moving forward. And I don't expect it to be solved anytime soon.
0: Yeah, I agree. I've been reading a number of pieces about the prospects for global AI governance and some kind of international agreement that would regulate, moderate, restrict the spread or use of AI in the world. And what struck me from from reading some of these is the over reliance on a single historical analog. Mm. And that is the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty.
1: Something you know a little something about.
0: You know, I'm, I'm maybe working on a piece on this, so I have some I have some thoughts. My feeling is that the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, the NPT, is not a great analog for AI for for a number of reasons. The NPT, for those who haven't heard me talk about this at length before, is an agreement where the countries that had nuclear weapons when this agreement was signed get to hang on to their weapons, but they're going to work toward a world free of nuclear weapons. And all the countries that didn't have nuclear weapons when this agreement was signed agree kind of not to get them. And so it's a treaty that restricts the proliferation of nuclear technology, the spread of nuclear weapons technology to to countries that didn't already have nuclear weapons. And so people have proposed that we could do something similar for AI. We could say, let's all get together and agree that we're not going to have AI used in this capacity in the world or we're not going to develop this technology further. And I think there are a number of differences from the nuclear case that make the MPT analogy fraught and make me skeptical that we're going to see an AI PT, uh, an AI nonproliferation treaty. And so, I I mean, I can run through a few of these marks I'm interested in if you have other ideas about this this analogy. But, you know, so the first thing that strikes me and something we talked about here before is that AI development, technology development is led by the private sector in a way that nuclear weapons technology development was not. Now, there are some dual-use parallels between AI and nuclear technology in the sense that the same technology used for civilian nuclear power can be used for nuclear weapons technology development, and AI has that flavor as well, and that we can use it both to write more effective limericks using chat TPT, but also to target our uh, weapon systems on on other countries. So there there is a dual use nature to AI as well. But in terms of who's in the lead, when it comes to developing this technology further, it's very clear that it's the private sector that is innovating in this space. It's not that the go- governments and militaries aren't trying to develop their own AI systems. I think they are. But I think it's at least my sense of the industry is that the private sector is out way out ahead. And and that creates challenges in, in terms of coming up with agreements that will regulate the private sector, to prevent innovation, which is something that countries are kind of reluctant to do and also that raise a lot of problems in democracies where private sectors have freedom to, to do what they want in, in, unless there's specific regulations that are put down on them. So I think that, that adds to the challenge. If it's, if it's the kind of thing where you're only restricting government behavior, then you, it's almost a simpler problem than, than it is when you're in this current situation. Another difference is that nuclear has very high startup costs, Compared to software, compared to, to AI development. And it's not that, that building a large language model is cheap or easy. It's not. And it's taken OpenAI years and years and, well, not years and years, but a long time to develop the data that underlies the large language model that is GPT. So there's there are high startup costs, but nothing compared to the physical plant startup costs that are related to nuclear technology, including like mining for particular th- minerals and um, distilling them and enriching them and, and building nuclear reactors and all this stuff is much more capital intensive. And so because nuclear is that capital intensive, it means that there's something that can be restricted, right? There's something that is It's difficult to spread that the world can kind of say, okay, don't sell this particular kind of uranium to other countries. But there isn't anything like that for AI, right? It's much more of an easier startup cost. And so to say, okay, this country, your private sector can't develop this technology is a much harder thing to actually restrict in practice. In nuclear, I think we had a much clearer sense of the danger of the technology. or maybe I should say a much better sense of the cost-benefit analysis that faced countries in thinking about whether to place limits on this technology. The countries understood what it meant to have nuclear weapons by the time the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty was was rolling along. We had seen these weapons used in war, and so we understood kind of the, the global danger of them, but also the potential benefit of them from a nuclear deterrence perspective and providing for the security of your own country. AI is a different world because the the concerns over AI are, are both kind of very specific, like using facial recognition to better understand who everybody is and thus invade people's privacy. This is a concern expressed in the EU regulations. It's both very specific like that and also very vague and menacing, like the AI is going to take over and just destroy humanity in some kind of vague, unspecified way. And I think this makes it harder for the parties that would be involved in an agreement like this, to see where they have common interests that would allow them to reach an agreement on restricting the technology. Because we don't really understand well how this technology is going to change the international security sphere. It's harder for countries to say, okay, it's in my interest to join this agreement. Expect because of that uncertainty, there'll be a broader set of views about what an appropriate restriction would be. It may be, for example, that there's more benefit to countries that have kind of less overall military take capability. So so maybe weaker countries benefit more from AI because it can kind of sub in for some of the capabilities that richer states have. That's one possibility. And in a case like that, you wouldn't expect countries to be willing to get on board with restricting the spread of the technology because they stand to benefit from that technology. So figuring out, like, who, who stands to gain is, like, a key component to putting together these international agreements. And I just don't know the answer when it it comes to AI. The the context here is also quite different, right? Like uh, you think about the Cold War context where one of the reasons countries joined these treaties is because they were in the U.S. sphere of influence or the Soviet sphere of influence. And those countries kind of banged some heads together and said – I want you. We want you to join. This is what the Soviet bloc is doing. This is what the the free world is doing. And so countries did it. And now we got none of that, right? Like there's no expectation that the U.S. is going to exert like leverage on countries to join some kind of agreement over AI. And then the last piece of this that I think is different and and is kind of important is that this is like a really tricky thing to verify or enforce. Let's say there was an agreement that was like, okay, you're not going to use AI for targeting of your nuclear weapons. We'll make an agreement. I mean, that strikes me as a reasonable agreement to keep AI AI out of our nuclear weapons. But let's say we reached an agreement with other countries over this. Well, how do we know that they're abiding by that agreement? The way countries do nuclear weapons targeting is not like an open thing. So we'd have to come up with some mechanism for trying to verify that If we care about verification, I don't know, you know, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with unverifiable agreements like that can be a reasonable thing to do. But you do run into a problem if you want countries to change their behavior based on some expectation that they will be punished if they're cheating on an agreement. And in a case like this, where there's like no way you would know whether countries were using this technology in a way that was forbidden by an agreement, you wouldn't expect anyone to behave differently based on the agreement. You'd be like, all right, well, look, we signed this agreement saying that we're not going to do this thing. But since we don't know if anybody else is abiding by that agreement, we're just going to go ahead and do this thing because there's no trust that we can put in an agreement that's unverifiable and unenforceable. And so I think in nuclear, there were like very clear, Signs that a country was cheating—it's sometimes hard to find those signs, but they're at least if we found them, we know what they mean. But in, in AI, it's hard to imagine what the signal would be that showed that the agreement was being effective or not, and that I think is a big problem for any kind of an international international agreement like this. So for all these reasons, I think like it's really hard to imagine a a non proliferation treaty the kind of the kind that we had for nuclear weapons taking hold in the world of AI.
1: Wow, Jeff! as usual when it comes to nuclear weapons you you spark right up and you know i i i wish the listener could see that just the joy in jeff's face right now his eyes you know there's so much like you know brightness and energy like you you never see jeff like this this is this is great
0: well now i don't have to write this thing up because i just i just gave you the oral presentation version of this of this paper this is good
1: yeah yeah now somebody's gonna go rip you off and and publish it
0: that's fine that's fine save me some time
1: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I don't I – don't, I, I, I find it very difficult to even you know, poke any kind of holes in what you're saying. I mean, I think the only thing I'll say for the listener um, – and this is, this is my view anyway – I think the reason that this, this sort of example gets trotted out a lot is because it does – there's a certain logic to it, right? It's like you have this NPT, which has been, per your book, very successful uh, at preventing you know, the proliferation of powerful, destructive technologies – uh, and so, you know, it's not it's not much of a stretch for somebody to say, like, oh, well, we already have one of these. Let's just apply it to, to AI. And so if you could sort of change it or, you know, and make little, like, modifications to the NPT and, and port it over to AI, you might have something, right? Um, it's also nice because the NPT does have this kind of, like, balance between preventing the misuse use of n- nuclear technology on the one hand, but also promoting peaceful use, right? So they've kind of have this this mechanism for dual use. And and so if with AI is going to be very similar. So like that works too. The NPC has these, these verification mechanisms. So if you're worried about verification, you're like, okay, this is all built into the thing. This is great. So like it, it makes sense that people would look at this. And I think it also kind of shows that there are not that many other kind of viable <laughs> alternatives when it comes to like frameworks like this, right? You can think about climate change as potentially one of them. You can think of other sort of regulatory uh, frameworks that are more specific, you know, either types of technology or, or you know, in trade, for example. Like there's, there are other things that you could kind of like point to, other examples, but none of them fit particularly well. And so it, it might be the case that the NPT is actually like our best ill-fitting kind of like metaphor or or framework or whatever for AI. And in some ways that's kind of sad because we don't have anything else to really turn to. Uh, and it's problematic for all the reasons that you're you're talking about. So. It might be that states can come together and say, let's, let's use the NPT as a baseline. We've got all these challenges that we need to figure out, uh, and we'll make changes to NPT based uh, and port it over to AI, and, and we'll figure these things out. I think, like you, I'm kind of skeptical that that's, that's going to work. Uh, it might be the case, and I know there are people working on this, that we need to come up with a brand new kind of framework, something that we haven't thought of before, something revolutionary, uh, and that's that's fine. Maybe that's what we need to do. That's going to be very difficult uh, as well. So for all of the reasons that we just, you know, you went through for the last 20 minutes, I I completely agree. Governance and AI at the international level is just going to be very, very tricky.
0: You brought up climate change. So we have just kind of reached the end. Is it the end of the climate summit has just happened or at least an agreement was announced? It feels
1: like the end. Yeah, I'm not sure when the official conference ends, but it feels kind of like the culminating announcement. Was made.
0: So we, we have a, an outcome from this from this meeting that depending on who you believe is either a huge advance or absolutely nothing ha- has been agreed to. So this is a, definitely a it's it's interesting to see the different ways that different parties have kind of spun the outcome that we see this agreement that was reached at the at the meeting. Will you summarize for us, Marcus, what what was agreed to and and whether you think this is a big deal?
1: Yeah, so I haven't uh, read the entire pact myself, but but the headline uh, outcome seems to be that vi- for the first time basically ever, you had 200 countries kind of come together uh, and pledge uh, that they will, and, and quote-unquote, begin transitioning away from fossil fuels. So oil, gas, coal, uh, all the things that have been shown uh, over and over again to affect uh, you know climate change and affect global warming and the, the health of the planet, we are now uh, evidently in this agreement going to uh, start moving towards transitioning away from the use of those uh, fossil fuels. There are, um, you know, sort of like timelines that I guess were were struck in terms of a compromise. So the New Deal calls on countries to accelerate a global shift away, this is from the New York Times, from fossil fuels this decade in a, quote, just uh, orderly and equitable manner, and to quit adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere entirely by mid-century. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but, you know, I guess we've, 2050? Uh, it also calls on nations to triple the amount of renewable energy, like wind and solar power, installed around the world by 2030, and to slash emissions of methane, a uh, greenhouse gas that is uh, more potent than carbon dioxide in the in the short term. Right. So the basic uh, sort of takeaway is that um, states are going to to they've pledged to start moving away uh, from fossil fuels. And so you might think, well, that you know, it's sort of a pledge, non-binding, doesn't really you know seem to to mean a lot. Um, the fact that that G and Biden, uh, as we talked about. Uh, previously weren't there some are wondering sort of like how meaningful uh, this actually is when the sort of you know two uh, heads of state represent the two largest powers in the system aren't part of it Um, although we know their their representatives were so there's lots of of different um, reasons to be be critical of this I as usual though Jeff and and the ever uh, present optimist I think that this is actually quite good I think that a pact like this is important and I want to take off you know one or just bite off one little piece I see people like on the internet Talking a lot about right, and this is, and I think we've touched on this before in the pod, maybe in season one. The idea that in international uh, regimes, international treaties, international law, you need to have binding commitments for them to work. Right? This is something that, that people have been pointing to. There's nothing binding here. They're just it's a pledge, it's cheap talk, it's it, you, know, you do whatever you want. If there's no binding uh, mechanism, then what's what's the point? And there has been you know a lot of research by David Victor and other people sort of pointing out that look, actually. Binding agreements, precisely because they're binding, are very hard to get and they're very hard to follow through because you need to have all of these you know, sort of domestic constituencies on board. You often need to pass the, the legislation internationally at a domestic level. This is actually really tricky to do. And as a consequence, if you have a binding agreement, it tends to actually lower rather than raise the sort of like benefits because states are only going to commit to what they actually think they can deliver on because it's binding. And so in some respects, in some ways, it's actually better to have non-binding agreements where states can actually, you know, kind of shoot for better outcomes and not have to be held to the thing that the very small thing that they were, were saying that they could do. And then they could forget about it. They can say, well, we met our binding commitment and we're done now. This allows states to actually have a little bit more flexibility how to they, how they achieve something. But this all sort of hinges on the idea uh, that that one has of international relations is being sort of like either pessimistic or optimistic. If you're an optimistic person like me, you think about non-binding. You don't think that's a big deal. You think they're actually trying to you know do something more meaningful than if they had to be have a binding agreement. But the pessimist, of course, is going to say, well, you're not binding states to do anything, and so therefore they're not likely to do anything. Uh, and what you're you're ending up with is basically just a, a a series of cheap talk kind of packs and and pledges and things that that happen kind of on a yearly basis in these climate. Conferences without a whole lot of action, but I'm forever the optimist, and I actually think that this is this is quite good and you know the, the climate is a, is a situation similar to AI in the sense that uh it's incredibly tricky like trying to figure out what these international deals are going to look like all kinds of national strategic interests uh, for many different types of states to not want to engage uh, in climate change legislation we we can, you know we've all gone through the the list of these in the past um countries who are still developing for example are like wait a second you guys in the West, we're able to, you know, develop and not have to worry about emissions, and so it's not fair for you to impose, you know, these regulations on us. And this is a- is actually about climate change. You don't actually care about that. This is about economics. And you're trying to limit our growth, etc., etc., etc. So there's lots of of reasons why uh, this is very difficult. But I-, I just think when when states come together in a, in a pretty profound way, like over 200 or nearly 200, kind of saying like we're gonna we're gonna be serious about this and we're gonna we're gonna tackle this. I actually am enheartened. My guess, though, Jeff, being the sort of rationalist that you are, uh, will say that, you know, the, the very fact that it's non non-bind- non binding means is sort of non, uh, useful.
0: Yeah. I, I
1: mean, I, I guess, I yeah. guess you're right. <laughs> I,
0: I kind of do, I kind of do think that
1: <laughs> you're so predictable. I know. Jeff. I'm you're sorry.
0: So it's, uh, maybe I need a new, <laughs> need a new angle on these things, you but yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess it's better that everyone agreed to some non-binding principles than that. They didn't agree to anything at all. In the sense that maybe the non-binding resolutions reflect some decision by these individual countries that this is what they wanted to do anyway, which is, which is great. And so we, we then see from the, the agreement, the non-binding agreement, the underlying preferences of the countries involved that they, that they kind of intended to go along, along this line. And I mean, in the, in the world of international institutions, this would be called screening, This idea that that countries were willing to sign on to this means that this is kind of what they already wanted to do. And so it's not that the, the meeting had an effect in changing the behavior of these countries, but it does help us capture and understand what those preferences looked like. That's if the countries that signed on to this agreement really do want to follow through on it and aren't just, well, everyone else is agreeing. It costs me nothing to agree as well. I don't really intend to do this. But I'm going to agree so that no one calls me out for not agreeing because in 50 years or whatever, when the bill comes due for this, no one's going (laughs) to it doesn't matter that I agreed or didn't agree at this at this meeting. So there is some risk, at least, that some of the countries in this 200 countries that agreed to this don't really intend to follow through on any of this. And to the extent that that's a majority of those 200 countries or particularly big countries in in the batch, that could be problematic for actually achieving these goals of of addressing climate change. I think there is an interesting dynamic here with Saudi Arabia and other kind of fossil fuel producing countries that maybe is more interesting about the outcome of this meeting. I don't want to downplay the, the, this big agreement to begin to, what is to transition away from fossil? Is that what the language is? Transition away? This agreement to transition away from fossil fuels? Transition away. That's something, I guess. But there was a movement by a smaller group of countries, like 100 countries, to phase out fossil fuels, which I guess is different than than transition away. (laughs) And Saudi Arabia kind of led the charge in pushing back against this idea of phasing out fossil fuels, arguing that there are multiple pathways to achieving progress on climate and maybe carbon capture that offsets fossil fuel production is one way to go. I don't know. So there was a kind of interesting dynamic of OPEC countries and Saudi Arabia pushing back against what many countries wanted to do with regard to making a stronger statement about the reduction of fossil fuels. This is, I think, interesting in the context of the broader OPEC bloc, Saudi Arabia, and yeah. Saudi Arabia's role in international politics right now, and the the kind of strained relations that the U.S. has had with Saudi Arabia in recent years. Here, Saudi Arabia pushing back against a kind of U.S.-led initiative to take stronger language on, on uh, the fossil fuels. Uh, but ultimately, like I'm the wrong person to be talking about this, because I don't think uh, either of those statements make much difference when it comes to the actual behavior of countries down the road, I think it's nice as a signal. And maybe maybe that helps mobilize domestic constituencies and international constituencies to hold to hold governments to their commitments, non-binding commitments, under these agreements. Um, and so maybe there's a mechanism there by which we can actually turn the corner on climate change. But like with AI, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not particularly optimistic yeah. that that's the direction things are going to go in.
1: That's fair. And and I also think it's, you know, you're right. I, I'm not spending a lot of time going back and looking at international agreements that were made 50 years ago and like pointing out that, you know, oh, Morocco said they were going to do X and it turns out they didn't like shame on them. You know, so there's not a lot of that kind of like the, the cost of, of saying these things um, doesn't really always uh, come through. I think the other point, though, that, that there's two points I will, I will make. And one is that. If the counterfactual was no agreement or the counterfactual was some sort of flimsy statement about the importance of working together on climate change, um you know, I, I think that this is better than that. Now you might say that what they did was flimsy, too, and that's and that's fine, and that's a reasonable uh, position. But in the sort of like universe of things that they could have done and the ways that they, the universe of like ways that this could have gone, Without Biden, without Xi there, like, it could have been a real debacle. You could have ended the conference with, like, nothing. Uh, maybe this, this group, you know, led by Saudi Arabia and others, like, not only, you know, prevents, uh, you know, sort of strong action on fossil fuels, but they actually get states to make a statement that's, like, you know, pro-fossil fuels or whatever. Like, who knows, right? There's lots of different ways this could have gone. And I think that this is, um, it's important that, that there was some consensus and they made a fairly strong non-binding statement relative to, to the other outcomes that could have been achieved. The other thing is, and we've talked about this on the on the pod before the, the sort of nuclear energy aspect of this I think is is kind of important too right so the, the transition away from fossil fuels uh, is one thing, and you can go to wind, you can go to solar, but you can also go to nuclear and there have been more stories recently I think about um, nuclear energy kind of getting a little bit of a resurgence in in at the state level in the sense of countries realizing um, Nuclear has its issues, and it's there are you know uh significance like safeguards and things that you have to do, but also might suffer more from like a branding problem than anything else and that if you can harness nuclear energy for um you know production that if you you're not going to be doing it in a fossil fuels way like this is actually a a a reasonable alternative so i'm I'm sort of interested in the in the the sort of co presence of this statement with more states kind of moving towards and adopting nuclear. Uh, energy that seems to be like a, a sort of meaningful um, evolution in how how states are approaching energy. But I, you know, who knows? The nuclear thing could also just you know fizzle out as well as states realize it's too costly, too dangerous, et cetera, and they don't want to, uh, to pursue it. But at the moment, I'm optimistic because of the statement and the sort of rise in nuclear energy uh, production.
0: Let me just push you a little bit. I, I'm happy. I I think it'd be fun to talk a little more about the nuclear issue. But on the statement that the states made, and you said and i agree with you that it's like better that they made this statement than that they didn't or that they made this they reached mm-hmm. this non-binding agreement than that they didn't but i guess my question for you is why is it better like can I, can i push you on this a little bit if the reason it's better that they made the statement is because it suggests countries were kind of already at this point in their thinking then then, then, then that's one thing mm-hmm. but if it's better that they made this agreement because you think that that's going to then impact their future choices having made this agreement then That's something else. That's more about how the institution or the international agreement is constraining countries' behavior going forward. And that's a different mechanism. And I wonder, Marcus, when you say it's better that they did this, what what do you mean by that?
1: I think it's uh, a couple different things. So I think it's the idea of consensus on the moving away from fossil fuels, right? So I think it's, it's useful for the international system to have this um, idea that for the most part countries are aligned on the idea that we're going to get rid of or going move away from from fossil fuels, which seems like a more specific claim uh, and a more specific idea than simply like working on climate change or trying to reduce emissions or whatever so I think I think from a from an ideational perspective like the statement itself is is productive like you're saying like we've done something now that's historic that we've never done before, and I think that that has sort of ideational positive effects i think you're right it's less it's less useful or important from like an institutional like what does the institution do perspective because i think you're, you're probably right that a lot of these countries were fine with with saying that they were going to you know move away from fossil fuels i mean the united states has already been, been essentially doing this biden has said in, in the campaign and and you know we're gonna we're gonna try to move away from fossil fuels we have more energy you know more solar energy more wind and all that kind of stuff so i think that that is um, important. The other thing that I think we didn't talk about, where it could be important too, is if you're thinking about this in terms of like economics or like the market that's kind of out there, like you're, the, the international system, the world is basically saying, like, you know, we're we're going to have less tolerance for or less use for fossil fuels, right? And so, if you're a car manufacturer, if you are uh, somebody that makes a an engine that you have to make a decision tomorrow, you know am I going to make this a traditional sort of combustion fossil fuel based engine, or am I going to do it through solar wind? Maybe you don 't change based on this you know statement that you read in the New York Times, but it is kind of a signal to to manufacturers and the and the economy more more generally that maybe we are going to see a shift here, and so decision making at the sort of local level might be affected in some way by the realization that. Fossil fuels aren't going to be here uh, forever. The fact that Saudi Arabia was trying to <laughs> prevent this from happening is an indication that they're kind of worried about it. Like you might you might say, all right, uh, well, this is a meaningless statement. It's non-binding. Who cares? Well, Saudi Arabia cared. And, and there's other countries that were sort of you know going along with them also cared. And so you might ask, well, why do they care? Well, presumably they care because they want to continue to sell oil. And they want to continue to have a, a high profits from fossil fuels. So they, they might have the intuition that this does something, right? This does something economically to them. This does something to to potentially go against their interests, and so they wanted to, to stop it. So, so when I talk about the counterfactual, like it's interesting to me is like they could have, they could, there could have been no statement, there could have been nothing at all. The fact that there was a statement that a group of countries, you know, kind of didn't like and tried to prevent from happening, I think is is a signal of something important. I think it's. I think you're right that it's hard to kind of put your finger on exactly what that is. The closest thing I can I can make is this sort of economic market argument. Um, but it seems like something happened because there was this contestation and it, and it got pushed through anyway. So I don't know. I'm like, again, it's, these are hard to, it's hard to sort of show like the exact kind of like, you know, causality here and whether the state preferences were X, but, but actually, you know, the, this institution changed them to be Y or whatever. I agree with you on all that, but I think, I think this is historic and I think it's, it is, uh, potentially quite meaningful.
0: It's interesting that you bring up the nuclear weapon, the nuclear piece of this nuclear energy piece of this. Because while this this meeting was going on, I was at a conference in in D.C. talking about the 70th anniversary of President Eisenhower's Adams for Peace speech that led to the Adams for Peace program, which was an initiative in the 50s that gave nuclear technology to countries that didn't have it, peaceful nuclear technology, so that they could to reap the benefits of the of the atom of the atomic age, and this these were small and sometimes not so small nuclear reactors. And the idea would be to spread this peaceful technology, help countries meet their energy needs, what was then seen as a very inexpensive way, and spread the the good side of the nuclear setup rather than the scary nuclear weapon side that was also being developed by a bunch of countries at this time. So Atoms for Peace was very important initiative in US policy but it had this controversial it was controversial from the start because along with giving countries this peaceful technology you're also giving them the seeds of a nuclear weapons program if they decided to subvert that technology for for their own purposes. And so now when we think about nuclear energy in the context of climate change there's the, still this problem that spreading nuclear technology nuclear energy technology also means spreading the dual use nuclear weapons technology and there are things that countries and companies that that build these reactors can do to make the reactors more resistant to proliferation. They can make it harder for countries to take what they have in a civilian power context and turn it into something they can use in a military context. But there's always this dual-use nature of nuclear technology. And so when we think about ramping up nuclear energy, it's something that we have to worry about. And you know, I think a lot of folks who work On the nuclear side, really believe that nuclear energy has to be one of the parts of the solution to climate change, solution for uh, for addressing climate change, because we just don't have enough capacity elsewhere. And nuclear is proven. We know it works. We know we can ramp it up. And we can actually create quite a lot of non carbon emitting energy through nuclear. And it's just a matter of managing the international security negatives and also some of the economic negatives because the startup costs as we mentioned earlier in the pod of of nuclear energy are quite high and in some countries like the United States the economics of nuclear energy production are really fraught that is it's really difficult for utilities to take on the financial burden of bu- building a nuclear reactor that is worth or that costs more than their more than their capitalization, right? That basically this nuclear reactor that they're building is more expensive than the entire worth of the utility. And so if the risk that that goes bad is too much of a risk to take because it would bankrupt the, the utility. And so the economics of this in a country like the United States, where everything is very free market driven, are really poor. And it kind of takes countries... That have a more um, that have a stronger government presence in energy provision to make these nuclear energy deals work because they can take on some of that risk that would otherwise go to a company and most companies are not willing to take on that kind of risk. So there is a pathway for nuclear energy to be an important part of the of dealing with climate change, but there are all kinds of challenges that are in the way of that that are very different than the challenges that that plague the transition away from fossil fuels when you talk about it that way. But it's something that a lot of people are are working on and thinking about.
1: And I also, just thinking at the, the public opinion level, I mean, I, I think a lot of people are fearful of nuclear energy. So one of the problems is that uh, it's it's politically, if you're trying to sell, you know, uh, the development of of nuclear energy as as you know something that you want to pursue, you know, people have in their mind Chernobyl, they have in their mind Fukushima, they have these like horrible accidents, they have um you know the idea of of nuclear anything is a little scary it's like i think nuclear i think nuclear weapons i think big boom you know i don't yeah. i don't particularly like that i think about waste management you know i think about like what do you do with all this all the waste that gets produced um but of course you know like a lot of it is also you have to sort of think about uh things in terms of risk uh not just in the, in the absolute sense but also the relative risk right and so you have to judge the the nuclear energy uh, potential risks to what we are already experiencing with the risk from fossil fuels, right? And so that's one of the kind of comparisons that people often don't make. They think about, oh, nuclear is scary. Well, fossil fuels are very scary too because we're seeing what they we're seeing the, the negatives of them uh, every day. And so I think a sort of reimagining of of nuclear energy, kind of a rebranding effort, some type of way to convince the public that it's actually safer than you think, uh, that it's safer than alternatives. I think all that needs to take place in addition to all the things that you're talking about, which are also true getting states to, you know, sort of, you know, share technology and stuff like that, and getting the ec- economics right domestically, because these things are very, very expensive. So a country like Japan, you know, might be able to do it uh, with more government sources. It's going to be hard for the private sector, I think, to pull it off.
0: Yeah, and but Japan is one of those places that's dealing with what you're talking about, which is a public perception of the risk of nuclear, and that's obviously affected very strongly by the Fukushima disaster and we've seen Japan kind of start to come back in in terms of putting more nuclear power plants online that there was a there was a time after after Fukushima that J- Japanese nuclear energy production kind of fell off a cliff um, in terms of future production but it's now kind of coming back and and putting new capacity online and and so you know I think if if Japan can do it anyone can do it in terms of managing the the fear of of nuclear accident it's just a matter of getting the economic piece in place. There are some places where there are kind of civil society or constituencies that are against nuclear power on safety grounds or on environmental grounds in terms of not adding spent fuel to the mix. But I think the environmental piece of this is slowly faded away a little bit as everyone comes to face to face with the the true environmental destruction represented by climate change and the the real need to do something about that, and so the idea of nuclear as dangerous, well, you know as you 're saying marcus is is it as dangerous as throwing up our hands and dealing with a a world that 's warming at this particular rate, and I think you know a lot of the environmental opposition to nuclear has kind of fallen away over the years as as the reality of climate change has has set in. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's less of an issue if the other pieces can be, can be put into place, but it's, it's not, it's not clear to me that, that we can do enough capacity in new in nuclear to, to make that happen, but it's one piece of it for sure. Right. And coupled with developments in other kinds of energy and wind and solar, I think there, there's a pathway there. It's just a matter of ramping all of that up over time. Okay. Well, Marcus, I think uh, maybe we should, we should leave it there.
1: You know, Jeff, as always, we covered a lot of territories, including climate change and AI governance. So it's been a great pod. Thank you for uh, joining me today.
0: Yeah, th- thanks, Marcus. Folks, thanks for joining us on this podcast this year. So this is going to be our, our last episode of the year. want to wish all of the listeners a happy holiday season and a peaceful new year and a peaceful 2024. If you want to reach us, please email us at cheaptalkpod at gmail.com. You can ask us a question, recommend a topic for a future podcast, or point out where Marcus was wrong about something. You have plenty of options to choose from, from, from this podcast. <laughs> you could also leave us a voicemail at speakpipe.com slash Cheap Talk. And we will see you in January 2024.
1: 2024. Oh, I can't even believe it. Yeah, it's crazy to think about. Where, where does the time yeah. go? I
0: know. It's nuts. All right. Thanks so much. See you next time. See you next
1: year. I have a a, a movie uh, non recommendation for you. So uh, Lindsay and I l- l- watched "Leave the World Behind" on Netflix because, like, Obama,
0: the Julie Roberts movie.
1: Yeah, and like Obama is like a, a producer or something on it. Is that right? Have you seen this it's film? A,
0: it's a, I believe, a so. Sam Esmail uh,
1: a movie. Yeah, the guy who did
0: um, Mr. Robot. Yeah,
1: yeah, I don't know who that is, but um, yeah, Barack and Michelle, Barack and Michelle Obama, executive producers on this film adaptation. Uh, of a book into a movie leave the world behind yeah and i have to tell you jeff i thought it was terrible okay like i i thought the pacing was completely off it was like an hour too long it doesn't really go anywhere the the themes and the tropes are all well trodden territory you know it's sort of it's sort of kind of like a warning about ai in a way or technology or but it's like a muddled argument whatever it is um and it's it's sort of also about like coups and like the, the idea of like a coup in the United States. Uh, I think it's supposed to be like a warning. I just didn't get it. It was it was pretty terrible.
0: Ethan Hawke in that movie is that right?
1: Ethan Hawke is in that movie. He actually is a bright spot. Um, yeah, he's great. And I'm not usually a big Ethan Hawke guy, but like I you know he was he was actually pretty good in that film generally speaking do you trust rotten tomatoes or the imdb uh rating if you had to pick one
0: so i use metacritic
1: oh metacritic yeah so uh, let me guess that takes all of the critics and makes a like a one score that's right that makes sense let me see what the metacritic says about this film that i just watched last night it was awful leave <laughs> the world behind 67 i mean that's that's not bad What's your what's your threshold? Like, what, what does it have to be before you will watch it?
0: I have kind of a sliding scale, depending on genre. <laughs> I mean, I think for, like, a drama, I would want it to be over 70. I will go lower yeah. for, like, Certainly. a kind of stupid comedy, because when you're in the mood for that.
1: Right. Yeah, that's funny. I think I my standards uh, for comedies are pretty low. My standards for action films are, are very high. Like, I hate bad action movies, you know, like, bad CGI or editing or whatever.
0: What's the best action movie you've seen recently?
1: Have you seen the Alfred Hitchcock film North by Northwest? I have. Yeah. That's, (laughs) that's an action film I've seen recently. (laughs) And I enjoyed that very much. Okay.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, I don't know if a recent, I mean, maybe you've seen it recently. Yeah.
1: Exactly, you didn't yeah. specify, so you have to be. A, but I mean, I, I think, uh, yeah, that's sort of that was a movie that kind of ushered in the whole. I, I think. I mean, I'm not a film historian, but like the sort of James Bond, you know, action. Uh, not really sure who the good guys are, the bad guys are, like that kind of thing. Um, with like lots of twists and turns, and and like really beautifully shot uh, for the time period. It's probably what the '60s. Let's see what your Metacritic gives that film. Actually, this is going to be a good test <laughs> to see whether this thing is reliable. Okay, North by Northwest. Ooh, 98, 98, produced in 1959. Okay, all right, I can get behind this Metacritic, Metascore business. All right, well. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great, it also has international relations uh, for for those, for the listener who, uh, I don't want to spoil it, but there is a scene that takes place at the United Nations in New York, and there's a stabbing. And so there is a sort of international politics tie in.
0: I've kind of met movies that have been produced, you know, in the last.
1: Oh, you said recently you met. Yeah, I got you. Um, I can
0: I can give you a a few more recent options. So did you see um, did you see the newest John Wick movie, John Wick 4?
1: I was just about to say, Jeffrey, I was recently on a very long flight, uh, either going to or coming back from Asia. And I watched all of the John Wick movies, including the fourth one. and. I thought one was very good and captivated me. Two and three, I didn't like, and then four kind of like resuscitated my love for the the John Wick kind of franchise. I think it was good.
0: Yeah, I think John Wick four was. Good. I mean,
1: the, the, nothing's better than the first one though. The first one is so is so. The first beautiful. one is great. That's it's right. So well done. Yeah.
0: I also like. I already recommend. I don't know if it's an action movie, but I already recommended the killer. Let's not cut that out. I might have cut out that section of the pod, but. The killer on Netflix, which is Great David Fincher.
1: Oh, I watched that. I watched that. Um, I don't disagree. I liked it. I liked it. And I like this sort of, like, um, psychopath genre. You know, I like the, um, idea of, like, a person who thinks very differently than than most people and, like, articulates their, their thoughts. Um, you know, not unlike the, what's the, the psycho, what's the other one with the, the Jason Bateman, Jason Bate, Bait um. Uh, not Jason Bateman He's the comic The one with the um, American Psycho Is that the one? Is that a movie? I think that's a movie Where he kills a bunch of people And he's he's a psychopath And but like talks about it You know And he like, right. talks about Like through his, his thought process uh, And that's what I en- enjoyed About The Killer Um the killer is a little tricky to get into because that first like fifteen minute scene in the in the, <laughs> in the hotel, across the street from the hotel where he's setting everything up and just like waiting for this dude to like come into the room so he can shoot him. You know, it's a little it's that takes a little bit you know to kind like, of get through. But they're setting up his personality and all that kind of. stuff. I thought so it I did, was great.
0: I sure I, that's that. my favorite part of it because it's like you get you get set up for this that this guy is a consummate professional hitman that he has everything down to the. The the minutiae of the job. He's very careful about how he handles everything. And then he, he puts on his, you know, like work, uh, his, his iPod, like uh, work playlist and does yoga and like is all ready. And then, and then it turns out and, you know, minor spoilers here. He's horrible at his job. And he's and the internal monologue that we're getting is just completely self delusional, right? That he he's like talking about all of the he's doing these daily affirmations about um, his perfect record and all of this. And then he just blows it (laughs) and then it kind of (laughs) careens forward from there. And from that point, he makes a series of just like horrible decisions in every every possible way. And I, I just thought it was both kind of funny and also like subverted the genre of the like. The professional hitman who does everything so perfectly because this guy thinks that that's who he is, right?
1: But then in, it, it turns out not so much, right? He's like a, a sort of incompetent psychopath, I would say, you know, and like talks to you about his like thought process while while he's being incompetent, which I which I really appreciated, you know. I'm just I'm just drawn to kind of like strange uh, uh, people and and. Uh, mental models that people have of the world. And so that that really did um, kind of scratch that niche. What is going on with your microphone? You're, you're spending like, you know, all of this energy – trying to get the microphones it, it keeps on falling yeah i need a gri does, does it have a screw can you global can research institute if you're listening <laughs>
0: we need a i may need an equipment replacement here. I, I, I got this for those who can't see me on zoom right now which is everyone for you marcus we, we got this uh got this big boom mic that's attached to my desk that i can like rotate out of the way and it comes down in front of my face when i'm podcasting and and on zoom meetings and stuff and and it, something's off with the, like, tension on this thing. So it slowly falls over time. It gets lower and lower. And so as I'm talking, I have to lower my face <laughs> lower and lower to be even with the mic. So I was, was trying to fix that. But
1: I mean, I would imagine that'd be very annoying. It's kind of annoying. You know, I, I, I don't have to deal with that. I, I have no boom mic. Um, I probably should have a boom mic, but I don't have a boom yeah, mic.
0: Yeah, it's not even clear you have a microphone at all, judging from the, the quality of the audio we're getting from your end.
1: Well, the thing is, is I have a, a timbre, a voice timbre that fluctuates. I've been told. Like sometimes I speak softly, and other times my voice is just, you know, very um, aggressive. And that's challenging for the, even the best equipment.
0: Can can I make one more um, one more action movie recommendation? Sure. Across the Spider Verse, the this year's sequel to Into the Spider Verse, which is the animated Spider Man movie, and uh, the sequel was better than the first one, which was already an amazing movie. And so if you can put aside that you're watching an animated movie, it, it's uh, just a spectacular film. Really highly recommend. Have you seen that
1: one? And it's about Spider-Man. It's about sort of. It's yes, about Spider-Man? Spider-Man? hmm Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I'll I, give it a try. I, mean, I, I don't have anything against animated films. You know, I liked... Um... I like sort of animated television stuff like the The Simpsons, I think is a fine program. Uh, South Park every once in a while has a very funny so I, I don't mind like sort of animation uh in principle. Uh, Team America, great movie from uh from the nineties? The, yeah. Late eighties, nineties. Yeah. Um you know, also touches on international politics, of course, with uh the North Korea situation. But anyway, so I um I don't I don't I'm not opposed to, to animated stuff if it's good. And Metacritic gives us an eighty six, so I'll check it out.
0: Can we spend a minute on, sh- on shoelaces and shoe-, shoe tying? Do we have time for that?
1: Well, Jeff, it's, it's our podcast, so we really have time for anything we want.
0: You, you're a runner, so you probably know all about this. this uh, but I kind of fell into this weird shoelace, shoe tying subculture on the internet.
1: This, this is a rabbit hole. You fell into a, a shoelace and shoe tying subculture? Yeah, like
0: apparently... There, there are a lot of ways to tie your shoes, Marcus. I'm not sure. I'm not, sure. I'm not sure if you knew that, but um, the internet in its in its beauty has documented all of these ways and the pros and cons. Mm-hmm. And so I I started down this road because my daughter's soccer cleats have these very high eyelets for the for the shoelaces that are. It turns out they're for heel lock. Do you know about heel lock?
1: Heel lock? lock? No, I don't know what heel lock is. So this is, is apparently no. a
0: runner's thing. So I thought maybe you would you would know about this.
1: Is this when you is this when you tie your laces like super like high and so like you don't you don't get movement from the I don't know what the bones in your foot are called, but like it stay it basically stabilizes the sort of like top of your. I was about to show you on Zoom, but that. that unnecessary like at your (laughs) ankle basically the top of your ankle is like sort of uh compressed a little bit and so like you don't get any movement from the i guess the heel lock part like the heel doesn't come up at all is that having anything to do with it
0: right it like keeps it keeps your heel back in the shoe which prevents i guess some kinds of injuries if you're running the the way you do it is you kind of uh some running shoes have these kind of two eyelets uh, one on each side that that's higher than the rest kind of go up a little bit kind of into the ankle part rather than the the part where you're used to lacing your shoes. And what you're supposed to do is you create a loop by going kind of directly up. So the right side eyelet, the top one goes into the one that's on the right. That's a little higher and the left goes into the one that's on the left. That's a little higher creating a loop. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, And let the record show that Marcus is showing me his shoes on the screen. And then
1: We'll put a picture of the in the in the, the yeah. notes the bottom yeah.
0: and then you then r- loop the laces back through those those loops that you 've created and tie them normally and what that does is that as the as there's pressure put on your normal laces from your running, it actually tightens around your ankle and keeps your heel where it is so I tried it out on my daughter 's shoes and it seems seems to work it looks kind of cool but what 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 happened next was i so I'm on these websites now that are talking about how to tie your shoes properly. And it turns out that I've been tying my shoes wrong my entire life.
1: Well, Jeff, first of all, I'm going to stop you right there. Uh, I'm going to dissent from the view that there's a right or wrong way to tie your shoes. I feel like if your shoes are not falling off and you're not tripping off your over yourself, I feel like your method is, is just fine.
0: I appreciate you trying to validate me here, but apparently there is a wrong way. And that wrong way is called the granny knot. Are you familiar with the granny knot?
1: No, but I think I can infer what that means.
0: The best source for your shoelace information is Ian's Shoelace site, uh, which I will put a link, link in the show notes.
1: <laughs> I love the website, too. It's like it's right out of like HTML 1.0. It is. It's like <laughs> it's, it's from like, the 90s Things and- flashing at me and there's, yeah. there's banner ads and things are flashing and there's an under construction sign. Yeah, it's great.
0: But the, the, the kind of header of this page is great. It's it's like, do your shoelaces sit crooked? Do you retie your shoes several times a day? These are both sides of a granny knot. Learn the one simple trick for keeping your shoes neatly and securely tied. And it turns out that this is what I've always done. And it's apparently it it the this is caused by a granny knot is caused by looping your first knot that you tie in the same direction as the second knot that you tie. And, you know, when you tie your shoes, you do that first crossover thing, and then you do the loops that you tie into
1: the second knot. Mm-hmm. I'm, doing a, I'm doing a demo right now for myself. So I, I make a little loop.
0: We'll, I'll let you uh, kind of focus on that. That seems to be taking Okay, I'm, st-
1: I'm not following what you're saying. So I, I take my shoelaces, mm-hmm. and I cross them over. Right. cross them over, and then I, I go like this, so it makes a nice little thing down mm-hmm. there. And then what I typically will do is I'll make a, a loop, like a bunny here, yep, like you exactly. taught in school. Make one, one little bunny ear, and then I mm-hmm. loop this piece around said bunny ear, and through the, the sort of space that's been created with my, my finger kind of holding it open, mm-hmm. right? And yep. then I, I deftly transition to pulling both loops together, like so, and voila, I have a, what you were going to call a granny knot. Is that a granny knot?
0: Yeah, so... I mean, I can't really tell because you're you're doing the whole thing sideways, and so I'm not sure if the fact that you're Correct. not looks like like a drunk person did it. If that's because <laughs> you were trying to demo it for me, or that's just how you tie your shoes, so it could go it could go either right. way. But I just I sent you a link in the chat here, Mark. So maybe pull that up, so you can see what I'm talking about. But basically, you have a fifty-fifty chance of. Making the so the first time when you cross those laces over in order to tie that first little knot that forms the basis for your bunny ears thing. Yeah. If you do that left over right and then you do the bunny ear loop left over right, then you've created a granny knot. Or if you do that first crossover right over left and then do the bunny ear in the same way, then you've created a granny knot.
1: So when you say right over left, oh, I see what you're saying. It never even occurred to me. Oh. So I always have my first little crossover be left, well, left over right from the perspective of me looking at the laces.
0: You, the shoe tire. Yes, that's right.
1: The shoe tire. Okay. So then the right lace goes underneath. Boom. I make a loop with the right. I put this around leap with through so you're saying i'm doing right twice and i need to have a left in there is that what you're saying i don't know
0: if that's what you're doing but that's what i was doing okay so the, that's the, what you the way you can diagnose this this is great podcast content by the way our us describing this the our lessons. numbers
1: are going to go through go once out. once word gets out about this exactly
0: <laughs> so the way you can diagnose well,
1: well No, we don't we'll send it to we'll send it to ian uh, Ian's shoelace site. Well, send him, whoever Ian is, yeah. a link to the pod. He's going to be. He's gonna think this is fantastic.
0: That's right. right. Ian, maybe we will have Ian on a future pod to, to talk about this with us. New sponsorship. The way you can diagnose this is there's two ways. One is the knot comes undone easily. And the other is that the knot sits crooked. So if you look it down at your shoes right now, dear listener, if you look down at your shoes and the n- laces are not perfectly perpendicular to your shoe if they're at an angle, then you, my friend, may have tied a granny knot. And you can go to this website to kind of see the the reasons for this and what causes it. There's a technical description of it and how to spot it. And so it turns out that I've been doing this my, my whole life. And the way to fix it is just to do that first loop, that first right over left or left over right in the opposite direction. And so you have a lot of muscle memory that (laughs) <laughs> you know been tying my shoes for a while that's causing me to do it in a particular way
1: i'm trying to do this right now it's actually it's actually quite hard to do
0: right. it takes a little bit it takes a little bit of thinking like you have to kind of yeah. think about it do it but then soon right. you can get to the point where it's second nature and suddenly your your shoes will sit straight they'll be tied oh that looks lovely marcus Th- that does, does look, look much, much better. better look at that and apparently these are much more <laughs> secure and, and are less likely to come undone. And so there you go. So I, I this whole
1: my whole life, my whole life, I've been doing it wrong. Yeah. Well, a couple couple observations here. Number one, yeah. So this is a failing of our, our childhood uh, pedagogical experience, right? So somebody should have told us in elementary school or whenever, preschool, whenever you learn to do this, you need to remember to do the opposite of whatever you just did. So I think that we need to get the word out that this needs to be taught in schools number two i love the granny knot flowchart on this website which is like it breaks it down by move <laughs> by move uh and, and the other thing is what you're telling me is what you really want is a reef knot right so the granny granny is red on this flowchart. granny is bad reef is green so reef knot is what we're actually looking for evidently that's right uh in the yeah. in the flow chart in the flow chart. um the other thing i'll say is i've been dealing with this all my life just by double knotting I, I sometimes have been known to triple knot. And it doesn't look great, but it solves the problem of the, the shoelaces becoming untied. I very rarely, more often in dress shoes than like sneakers, but I very rarely have an issue of my shoelaces becoming untied.
0: Well, right. That's how I that's how I deal with it too. But but if there's a there's a right. there's an aesthetic argument here that people look at you and they see your your tilted shoelaces my
1: granny knot i'm gonna push back i'm gonna push back on you though i mean i i think also part of the issue though is that shoelace manufacturers i think have like sort of adapted to the idea that you and i are going to double and triple knot our things and so they're they're particularly long so if i tie my shoelaces correct like correctly now i think it's gonna be there's gonna be too much lace like i think they're like accounting for the fact that we're we're dopes that are gonna like double double tie our, our laces and now if I do a single proper thing, I think there's going to be too much lace hanging around my, my shoe. So that concerns me. I'll investigate.
0: Yeah, I think that's a reasonable concern. I mean, I, I feel like if you tie the knot correctly and then double knot it, it still looks nicer than the, the granny knot plus double knot. So it's not as if we've learned nothing from the granny knot situation. And I've sent right. you, Marcus, also in the chat, Ian's granny knot analyzer where you can check <laughs> each step of your knot-tying experience to to diagnose what's going on. And you ch- it basically gives you options. So for step one, do you do this, do you do this, or do you something else? And you click it, and then it takes you to step two. And so this will help you diagnose whether you really do have a granny knot problem. And part of Ian's motivation for this website is an educational mission. And so you mentioned the failure of preschool pedagogy in teaching us the correct way to tie a knot, but this the the real audience for this information are preschool teachers and and parents that you have to show your kids how to do this. And who ties more shoes than preschool teachers and daycare providers, right? I mean, they're constantly having to retie these kids' shoes. And so one of the messages here is you have to untie the original knot. You can't take a shortcut and just redo the loop because what you're doing is kind of reinforcing The granny knot it's going to come undone again what you need to do is start over and tie correctly and so if we can if we can reach just a few kindergarten teachers with this podcast marcus i think we'll have we'll have done a service of spreading ian's ian's spreading ian's message to the world
1: so one, one thing we might do jeff is i know when people go to to um School board meetings, they often are there to talk about the curriculum and they don't like how you know X topic is being taught or they want to talk about some building that, that may or may not get built or the traffic that's caused by a certain policy. I think we need to bring this to the attention of the school board. and So maybe the next time that they're meeting, I'll go and instead of talking about um, something highly contentious, I'll, I'll bring up this, this shoelacing um, you know, epidemic of a problem. Uh, and see how they they respond. The other thought I have, Jeff, is I wonder if the big shoelace lobby is behind uh, some of the pedagogical decisions, right? I mean, clearly, if anybody benefits from shoelaces becoming untied, it's the shoelace manufacturers, right? Because your shoelaces come untied, they fall on the ground, they get dirty, they get gross, they get worn out. You got to go buy new shoelaces. And so- They might be behind. There might be some secret sort of, you know, uh, cabal of shoelace manufacturers secretly sort of infiltrating the the school curriculums across the country, maybe even across the globe, uh, to ensure that our children are being taught incorrectly how to tie their shoes. It's a little bit of a conspiracy theory, but yeah,
0: I, I guess. I mean, for me, whatever the broader kind of policy implications of this discovery, yeah, this was kind of a personal journey for me because you know I've been doing this my whole life something that is second nature to me. And is something I haven't put any thought into. And then all of a sudden, one day in the year 2023, I discovered on the internet that I've just been doing it wrong, like this whole time. yeah, And it's really like shaking me out of my complacency with the world. And it has caused me to question, what else am I just doing the wrong way in my life? And I think, you know, maybe there's something useful to that. It's taking a moment to to question your behaviors. Here we are on the cusp of a new year, Marcus. It's a good time to look at what we're doing and ask, are we doing it right? You know, do, we need, do we need a change?